This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. My name is Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Shearway. Today we're bringing you a recording of a live event that we did with our friends at the 538 Elections Podcast. If you're not already familiar with the team at 538, they use statistical analysis to break down and understand politics, sports, and culture. You may remember in Mr. Willis of Ohio, we talked to Ben Castleman about the census. He's the chief economics writer at 538. So on the 538 Elections Podcast, they have a regular feature called Good Use of Polling or Bad Use of Polling. And on a recent trip they took to Los Angeles, they had a live event where they invited me and Josh to help apply that kind of analysis to a few moments from the West Wing. And we got to bring back West Wing writer and producer Eli Addy. He joined us on stage for part of the discussion. The whole thing was a really fun way to bring the West Wing out into the real world in a new way. So before we get to that, one word of caution. Coming up, we're going to be talking about scenes from a few different seasons, not just season one. So if you've been watching The West Wing for the very first time along with the podcast, that's awesome. But I would wait to listen to this because there are some major spoilers coming up. Okay, here we go. We are the uh, 538 Politics Podcast. My name is Jody Avergan, and thank you all for coming. And with us is our usual panel, Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Politics reporter Claire Malone. Hi, Claire. Hey, Jody. And, of course, whiz kid Harry Enten. Hello, Harry. So here's how it's going to work tonight. We're going to play a number of clips from the West Wing, and we are going to uh, discuss the use of polling in them. Uh, and to help us do that, we have our friends from the West Wing Weekly. So please welcome to the stage Rishikesh Hirway and Josh Molina. Hi, Rishi. Josh, hey. hi. So do you, do you want to say anything before we just dive into clips? Yes. Is there anybody here who's never seen The West Wing? Oh, yeah. Okay, a few people. There are going to be spoilers. Yeah. They Good talk luck. about polling. That's the spoiler. Um, okay, so we're going to, we'll, we'll try and like contextualize each clip a little bit, but mostly we're just going to watch and, um, and take a look. So this first clip is from season four, episode seven, um, and... It's basically, it's election day, and they're basically freaking out about the polls, and this has to do with, that's, it's pretty straightforward. This has to do with, yeah, anything we need to say about this? Well, this is when, so Josh joined the show playing a character called Will Bailey, um, and this is his second episode on the show. All right. So this is right when the show peaked. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It started so, its slow downward So Galen's in the back, let's, let, let's take a look. How much do you know about exit polls? You stand 100 yards away and say, who'd you vote for? You can't afford exit polls. Yeah, I've got volunteers out there with clipboards. Yeah. Something weird's going on. What? We're winning. What do you mean? We're down one in Spyglass Hill, even in Emerald Bay, and up three in El Toro Station. Okay. Can I give you nickels worth of free advice? Yeah. It's not advice so much as I'm saying this. Democrats vote early, okay? And diehards vote early. Okay, you want me to call in every couple of hours? Every hour. Okay. Bonnie, Democrats vote early, right? Yeah. Ginger, Democrats and diehards vote early, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Some of you laughed early, and I know you knew it was coming. <laughs> um, so that's, that's what counts as a laugh line on the West Wing. Um, do you need more context about who the, who the candidate is? The Bartlett. Nate already told us that. No. No? no? Oh, no. shit. Even I know that. Really? Yeah. Who's the candidate? So Doesn't Sam run Will for... Bailey is the campaign manager. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. For a dead guy. For a dead guy. Oh, yeah. And so the strange, the reason why it's so strange that they're winning is that this guy who has That's right. passed away is still winning. And the reason why Rob Lowe's character, Sam, is so nervous is because he said that if, if this 
guy has died wins, then there's going to be a special election, and he said that he would run in his place. That's a very Actually. helpful context. Actually. It is good context. <laughs> I stopped watching as soon as he got cast. So. Um, all right, so, so Nate. You and much of America. Good, good use of polling or bad use of polling, do Democrats and diehards vote early? I mean, there's been some history, most um, infamously in 2004, of exit polling overrating Democrats. Um, 2004, people on the internet thought that John Kerry was going to be president for part of the election day then. He was not. Um, you know, whether it's because Democrats tend to vote early or just the exit polls suck, I'm not so sure. Um, Which one people, is it, Harry? Well, I would say a few things. Do Democrat, diehards definitely vote early, but whether or not it's Democrats voting early depends on the state. So in a state like Iowa, Democrats definitely vote early. They vote early absentee. Versus in a state like Colorado, if you go to the 2014 presidential, uh, not presidential, senatorial election, Republicans voted very early in that one. In fact, you saw Mark Udall cutting down that margin day by day by day as more election day votes got counted. But Harry, you're, you're ducking the question. We're saying on election day. Right, but you oh, vote early. Constantly. Oh, vote early in terms of they vote early in the day. Morning yeah. or night. Meaning uh, ex early exit polls. I assume Florida probably... has a lot of early voters, early risers, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> I. So, Track. And they have dinner. Exactly. <laughs> I would not trust an exit poll that was conducted by people who don't know what they're doing, and I barely trust exit polls conducted by those who know what they're doing. So when they say in this clip, you can't afford exit polls, exit polls, you want like a professional... It's like, it's like we've talked about this a bunch on the show, that like a good poll is... Good polling is expensive, and you need professionals who know what they're doing, and so on election day to have a reliable exit poll, you need to pay people real money and have them go out there and, and do Yeah, there has job. to be a random sample. Oftentimes younger people are oversampled. Right Democrats right? are oversampled in exit polls quite frequently. So, oh, good. Is there any data about diehards voting for people who have actually died? <laughs> we have, we, we've had a number of elections where dead people win. I mean, Mel Carnahan in 2000, for instance, was dead. And he won that election, um, so it shouldn't be so surprising. I think I that mean, might have been the, the inspiration for this yeah. storyline. Is that right? Yeah. So going into I was going to ask Carrie, yeah. what do you think of the West Wing? <laughs> I find it to be a perfectly enjoyable program, but you have to recognize. Just I think I think stop there. Stop. Wait, wait. Yeah, I have, we've got, no, no, we've I got have, our quote. I have a question. In need. what in what context was this like under duress? Was this like on a date? Why did you watch the small sample of West Wings that you did watch? Well, because my college because roommate I, was obsessed with the show, and when I was actually doing real work while he was watching the West Wing, every so often I come out of the room wearing very little, and I check <laughs> out the show, and then I go back to writing what I was doing. A vivid picture of Harry Anton's college life. <laughs> to me, it's like it's like Korean food. Mm. <laughs> no, I, of course. Good setup. No, like once every four months, I'll eat Korean food, and I'll say, "I really like Korean food. Why don't I eat Korean food more often?" And then I won't eat it for another four months. On behalf of quality TV watchers and Koreans everywhere, <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> uh, we have five more clips. Oh yeah, but no. uh, but 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 Josh, going into into going into a scene like this, sure. Are you just like? They give you your lines and they say, say this and it's true? Or do they educate you about the fact that exit polls are skewed in this way? I First mean, how, all, much, this is... how much poli-sci goes into your prep for a scene like this? None. None poli-sci. <laughs> uh, this is my favorite kind of scene because I'm on the phone and thus uh, I don't need to interact with another actor. <laughs> so already I was ahead of the game. Um, no. People always ask me, research into the role and this and that. By the time I jumped on the moving train that was the hit show West Wing, there, is, there was no time for research. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hear the lines, Sam. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's play our next clip. So, so we're actually going to... Uh, okay. <laughs> we, should, we didn't discuss what the actual cue would be. Sorry. Um, I'm going to set this up. Uh, we're going to play two clips from uh, the same episode, which is called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. Uh, season 1, episode 21. Good episode name. Yeah, good episode name. Um, I don't know. Rishi, do we need to know anything about this? Is this the introduction? Is this where Joey Lucas kind of first is on the scene? Is she in, in? No, she's been introduced already. Okay. Did you guys know? The, um, did you guys talk about the lies, damn lies, and statistics yeah. joke on your show all the time? I assume. I don't know. No. No. Do you guys listen to your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> no. No. Harry has actually never listened to the podcast. The the line is a the punchline to a to a joke. There are three kinds of lies. In the world, lie or three kinds of 
Yeah, untruths in the world, lies, lies damn, damn lies, and statistics. And statistics. <laughs> All right. Um, so there's a poll on Bartlett's favorability, and the staff is kind of parsing the framing of the poll. And so let's um, let's listen to the first clip, which is more about kind of sample size, and then we'll we'll play a second clip. Here we go. Hey Sam. Hey Ginger. How's it going in there? I popped Mandy with my tranquilizer gun. She's doing fine. Bonnie wanted to know why it takes 48 hours. We need 1,500 responses. It takes 30 people 48 hours to make 1,500 calls? It takes them about 12 hours to make 1,500 calls. We need 1,500 responses, which means we need to make 6,000 calls. Sam. Yeah. Only one in four people don't hang up? That's if you're lucky. Uh, I want to play the second clip fairly quickly, but Harry, like in terms of, like how out of date already is that? Very. Yeah. Um, so the stat again was, right, you have to make, it takes 30 people 48 hours to make 1,500 calls, and one in four people don't hang up. Which of that is no longer true? One in 10 about now, if you're lucky. Um, some of the polls you see in the public, especially the interactive voice response, which is the automated polls, now it's more like 3% of people don't hang up. So one in four zero. All y'all be yeah, screaming math, your calls. Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean that they're making more or that they're living or that pollsters are living with smaller samples? No, I mean, they're, they're usually just making more. They're, I mean, it depends on the poll what exactly you're looking for, but usually they're just making more calls and it's much more expensive to conduct a poll because of that. Right. Is it left less effective because now it isn't, because it's automated and it isn't people? Well, it depends. The live interview polls are about as accurate as they have been despite the fact that the response races have fallen, the political polls, I should say. Uh, there's no real sign at least in general elections, that right now polling is any less accurate than it was in the year 2000, but let's give it a few more years. 2014 was a poor polling Nate, year. That's a classic name. <laughs> well, you yourself wrote the article that I'm just going off of. Well, the article, the article said it's not time to panic, but things aren't going great either. Well, sure, but 1998 was a very poor, poll, poor polling year, and you know not to judge anything off of one polling year. Come on. Look at the rest of the world, Harry, the UK and The UK, Israel the Brexit was a perfectly fine polling, as you have just... I'm um, just saying, we had... So we had a lot of really good years for polling from roughly 2004 to 2012, and I think that might have been an outlier as far as how well things were, were going. Um, you know, having polling surprises should not be that much of a surprise in most contexts. Presidential polls are easier to conduct than a lot of things, but... Um, but this was accurate at the time it was taped, I yeah, think. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and it is a pain in the butt to conduct a poll. It takes right. a lot and of time to have trained interviewers do it and a lot of money. All right, let's watch the, uh, the next clip from the same episode, and this is the staff kind of going over the, <clears throat> the structure of the, the poll itself. Let's take a look. Question six is asymmetrical. Question six is fine. Would you say things in this country are going in the right direction, or do you think they've gotten off on the wrong track? He's got a good point about this. No, he doesn't. Guys, you know it's five after seven? Should be right direction or wrong direction. Toby. Direction and track are two different words. Thank you, Funk and Wagnalls. What you call me? Funk and Wagnalls. They make the dictionary. I know who Funk and Wagnalls are. Then why'd you ask her? Guys, it's five after seven. The question is asymmetrical. That may be so, but the question originated two decades ago and has proven to be a consistent predictor of the voters' potential behavior, so it stays the way it is. I have a problem with 14. What's your problem? When making policy decisions, do you think that President Bartlett puts the needs of average people first? Average people's a pejorative phrase that occurs about six times in the polling model. This may come as a shock to you, but 80% of the people in this country would use the word average to describe themselves. They do not find the term deprecating. Indeed, being considered an average American is something they find to be positive and comforting. CJ? Yes. Jed Bartlett cares about people like me. Leo, we went over this. We need to talk about the asymmetry of question six. We really don't. Since when are you an expert on language? In polling models? Okay. 1993. Since when are you an uptight pain in the ass? Since long before that. Jed Bartlett cares about people like me, agree or disagree. Mm. Again, we went over this. Can't people like me when read off a script be taken to mean people like the interviewer? When we ask that question, we usually say people like yourself. Or people like you. We've seen it both ways. Fellas? Yourself is a little softer. Well, and softer is bad? No, softer is better. But the point is... The respondent isn't confused by the question, and separating the respondent from the interviewer with people like yourself is pejorative. So, Ed, Larry, you can take this up with Josh. Leo, Eastern Standard Time is sitting down to dinner. The poll is fine. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot to, to go into there. But uh, Josh, I have a question for you about the structure of this scene. Like it starts very kind of mundane and it's like about the, the, the polling. But then like CJ, which I think is often a role for her, like sneaks in some like incredible insight, you know, with her line of like, 
most people are proud to call themselves, quote, average American. And then it, like, dives right back into the, the mundane, and it feels very West Wingy in that way. It is West Wingy. And I don't think people devising a poll usually move that much when they're discussing it. <laughs> that's, my, that's my guess. Yeah, that's true. Um, they probably just sit. Right. So, I don't know. what, it, what in, in watching that and that structure, like, is that a role for CJ often? It's to, to this is really more of a Richie question. Really? Yeah. Well, he's the, the West Wing. Why are you first? here? I'm just here to meet people and take selfies afterwards. Okay. <laughs> I know my crowd. Uh, Josh describes himself as the eye candy of our podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to say it, but thank you. Um, I, I don't think that's... I think the kind of trade-off. People... It's, it's a role that is played often where one person kind of uh, takes the trajectory of, of the narrative and the plot and then gets it this nice didactic, you know, little soundbite in there too. Um, so as use of polling, there's a lot there, but how much does the actual wording of a poll matter? I mean, this is a pretty good clip as far as use of polling goes. I right? think we're winning Nate over. I yeah. think you're going to go watch the West Wing after Watch this. the show. <laughs> Um, no, because, you know, right direction versus wrong track, that is asymmetrical. Um, and that question, it is. And often people say, you know, wrong track doesn't sound so bad. Wrong direction sounds much more firm, right? Um, and so often the responses to the question are, tend to be maybe more negative than people's mood is. But as characters are saying, you know, if you've been asking the same question for a long time, then a flawed measure that you know how to correct for might be better than a new measure that you're in the dark for what it means in context. Well, I was just thinking, I, I recently wrote a piece about Americans' perceptions of a woman as president since 1937. And Gallup, which started in 1935, has actually been pulling that question in some form or, no, or another since 1937, which I thought was pretty shocking. And I think the first one, the first way they phrased it was, would you vote for a woman if she was qualified for president? Surprisingly, not a lot of people <laughs> would. But a few, I think they did it like five years later, and they said, would you vote for a woman if she were qualified and your par the party that you usually support supports her? And then it sort of, that, that phrasing kept for many, many years. And when Hillary Clinton came about, you know, as like a, her own separate political entity in the late 90s, early aughts, it sort of changed to kind of mold to, to Clinton, at, you know. And so, so I think it's kind of fascinating to watch the way that pollsters manipulate language because it does, you know, you are getting at the same, the same gist of things, um, but you, you might get slightly different responses. How have the numbers moved on that? Positively. Although there was, there was a time like in the early, the, in like the early 2000s where people, people were supporting a woman president in theory and then Hillary Clinton came around and they were like, mm. and then it sort of popped back up a little bit. But it, it, you know, once you put a face to the concept, it did, it did take a hit. All I know is I often get, uh, when I try and Google or poll search right direction or wrong track, I frequently do it incorrectly because I want to make it symmetrical. And in fact, it's an asymmetrical thing. So this is... And when, when you are writing a piece based on a poll, um, is this part of your process, like going in and looking at the actual wording? Sure. Of course. And words matter. Yeah. Thank you, Harry. Um, <laughs> well said. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, good words, Harry. Um, Strong words, and only so, the best words. So are you, often, are, you, are you often throwing out a poll because you think the, the phrasing is bullshit and it's corrupted? Of the course. Poll? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I'm always, you know, for instance, on ballot measures or stuff, you know, that maybe Donald Trump has said, I'm always looking for questions that ask the exact thing that he has said because otherwise you could get a tilted field. I think that pollsters should just stick to what is actually being said and don't try and get too smart and summarize. Just try and stick to the actual wording and that's usually the best method. But that would involve having to say the words that Donald Trump said out loud, which is just... There's nothing wrong with laughing occasionally. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's uh, one yeah, thing I wanted, I wanted to mention about this clip. So I realized um, y one thing that gets pointed out on the show is despite the fact that these characters are presented as brilliant, passionate, righteous people, um, they do have a level of cultural elitism. And, um, and watching this clip the first time I, I saw it, you know, I realized that I probably was on the Josh Lyman side of things, thinking that average American might be a pejorative term. Um, but in this context with you guys, I realized that um, 
I had taken that. You're an elitist. <laughs> I'd taken that <laughs> CJ fact, you know, about 80% of Americans find that comforting. You know, when I watched the show, I was like, oh, great. And my, my mind was changed by the show, you know, not for the first time. And, um, but now I realize that could completely be made up. There's, there's absolutely... <laughs> there's an elitism in assuming that about the average American, that they're okay with being an average American. And, and the, the 80% of it and stuff, I was like, yeah. I was like oh, yeah, I was, uh, I was on the wrong side of this. I was with Josh, but now I've been corrected. But there's, there's no reason why that should be... Someone just wrote that. Yes, wrote it. It was good TV. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's move on to the next clip. This is from... Rishi, you, you, you picked this one for us. You want to set this up? This is from season one, episode 14? Yeah. Um, so here, this is one of my favorite episodes. It's called Take the Sabbath Day. And um, in it, the president and the administration in general are wrestling with the death penalty. There's a, a federal inmate who's been, uh, whose execution is supposed to happen. They have 48 hours to make a decision if they're going to um, stay the execution or let it happen. And this is between. This is a scene with uh, President Bartlett and Joey, who we haven't seen yet. So Joey right. is Joey Lucas is played by Marley Matlin. Um, she is in this episode. This is her first appearance, and she is running. She's running a campaign for some low-level um, candidate, but she's managed to, through luck, she's in conversation with the president. The president is struggling with this um, idea so much that he's basically talking to anybody. He's talking to. A, Someone just ran. So she's like the Corey Lewandowski of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, let's. She has not pushed anybody (laughs) on this episode. Let's take a look. Go ahead. Where did you go to school? UCLA and Stanford. There's a guy named Simon Cruz on death row. He's going to be executed in about 36 hours. What do you think I should do? Stay the execution. Why? Because the state shouldn't kill people. He was found guilty of a double murder and drug trafficking. Send him to prison. You're against capital punishment? Yes, sir. Did you study St. Augustine at Stanford? Yes, sir. Thomas Aquinas? Yes, sir. Two pretty smart guys, right? Yes, sir. They believed in that part of the Old Testament which said, who sheddeth a man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And Immanuel Kant said, that the death penalty is a categorical imperative. But, Mr. President, those writings are from other centuries. I've got a Harris poll says 71% of the American people support capital punishment. That's a political problem. I'm a politician. Yes, sir. Classic dilemma between Harris poll and St. Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what what, what do you make of this scene? Why do you like it? I like it because it sets up something that I think happens a lot, which is that the administration has to make, has to run between their righteous idealism and the pragmatism of, of governance. And so, you know, do they act in a way that follows their own heart or do they follow popular opinion? Is following raw popular opinion ever a, the right answer in Aaron Sorkin's world? No, I, th- I think generally not. Um, one of the things in preparing for tonight, this, this took place about 45 minutes, about 45 minutes ago. Surprised, yeah. um, I called my friend Eli Addy, who uh, was a special assistant to Bill Clinton and then uh, chief speechwriter for Al Gore and then a great executive producer and writer for the show. And I was asking him about polling generally in the West Wing universe. And his take on it was that the show, as created by Aaron, uh, tends to view polling... Uh, not as a finger in the wind, which way should we go with things, but rather as uh, an opportunity to overcome an obstacle and to change hearts and minds and to push them maybe in the right, more righteous uh, direction. There's a line in an episode um, that we don't have a clip of, but um, that is kind of a hallmark of this, where the president says, our job is not to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Our job is to raise it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I'll drop some West Wing knowledge. Bartlett is a devout Catholic, right? And so this is the, a problem that's close to his heart. But this actually, the, the, the idea that um, polling is sort of gives you the feel of what's going on in the culture, the zeitgeist, but shouldn't be, I mean, if you relied on polls, which a lot of politicians do, obviously, but to, to completely um, form your political 
opinion. I mean, you know, that's people can people can smell disingenuousness. But we talked a couple weeks ago about the the poll of Native Americans or American American Indians and how they felt about um, the name of the Washington Redskins. And the majority of Native Americans, American Indians, I'm not quite sure which one I'm supposed to use, but I'll use both, said that they were not bothered by the name. Now, I would say, fine, that's the way they feel. I would also say it's a racist name. So polls, you know, I think, and probably a lot of American Indians, especially those who are living on reservations, are like, I don't give a fuck. I've got, like, worse things going on right at home. High rates of alcoholism, a terrible sexual assault problem on reservations. And so maybe things that people, the elites in Washington, you know, are paying attention about and are getting riled up about. Regular people are just kind of like, I've got bigger problems. And I think in that way, polling can be really interesting because things can be wrong, but people can feel that, that they, they want to have them happen. I mean, I was reading a good piece about Brexit on Medium before I came over. It's not a joke. Um, <laughs> but no, and it made the point that, look, if you believe in democracy and the wisdom of the crowd, so to speak, then not only do you have to, to live with something like Brexit occurring, you also have to say, and maybe people got it right, and maybe my position on this is wrong and the collective understands more than individuals do. Um, you know, that seems like maybe relevant advice in an election when you had a lot of populism rising potentially, I, I don't know. But, but do you think in this situation where it's, you know, morality or values versus polling, do you think more politicians should just look at the raw numbers? Well, what I'm saying is that at some point, um, at some point you say, you know what, I believe in more of a republic and I believe that, you know, elites should have more input in, you know, but you should kind of go there and actually kind of make the logical argument um, instead of saying, oh, people are just misguided. If only people were better educated on the issue, they would think, they would think differently. I mean, that to me seems like a kind of elitist view too. Harry. I just point out two things. Uh, number one, I don't remember the last time I actually saw a Harris poll being uh, publicized. That They've gone off and done their own things. Lou Harris, though, I believe is still alive at like 96 and living in uh, South Florida. Um, Shocker. 65% of his family believes him to be <laughs> That's still <right>. alive. <laughs> and then the other thing I'd say is that 71% has dropped 10 to 15 points depending on the poll you look at. So the trend has been away from capital punishment. Away from capital punishment yeah. since the show. Yeah, uh, nothing on that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. No, but a lot of times, too, you're, you're doing work that's very kind of long-term in nature, that you're not going to change opinion overnight. Um, but, you know, the death penalty is an issue, for example, like gay marriage or like marijuana legalization, where there has been a trend that's moved a couple of points every year, usually in the same direction, and people start out with very modest expectations of what they can accomplish, and they kind of can push the needle gradually. I mean, anytime you use metrics, then, um, you know, we face this if you're running a website or running a TV show or anything else, right, where you kind of know what's going to pay off in the immediate term, what's going to get the best ratings for this week's episode, and um, it might not be the best move in the long term. That's actually, it's funny that you mentioned TV, because when Eli was telling me Aaron's take on polling, it made me think that it probably does fall parallel in line with his take on getting input on his TV shows yeah. <laughs> and listening to either, you know, what a network has to say or what the general Which is basically is. like, that's nice. Now yeah. I'm going to go do my thing. I think so. Yeah. Uh, okay, next clip. Um, what, what context do we need for this, Rishi? Um, also from the West Wing. Yeah, also from the West Wing. Uh, the pre this is like a spoiler, I guess. The president has MS. And they're trying to figure out the best way to disclose it, or the least politically damaging way. Man, I can't believe he got reelected. <laughs> Should we just spoil everything in yes. the West Wing right now? <laughs> um, okay, so the president has, and, he, and again, this is with Joey and um, with Josh Lyman, and they're trying to figure out how to start to do some polling that will give them some hints as to how to disclose this information. All right, let's go. When will you go in public? Probably in uh, about a week. A week? How? We're deciding, probably a live interview followed by a press conference. So we need to know what we're talking about. Joey, we need you to put a poll in the field. You gotta come up with a model that gets us the answers we need without asking the questions we can't ask. You gotta come up with a model by yourself. You gotta break down the results by yourself. Not even the callers can
can understand the questions they're asking. And you got to do it all in 96 hours, is what I'm describing possible. We went to the governor. Governor? Of an industrial state. The governor of an industrial state. Michigan. And you give him a degenerative illness? Joe, you understand that before this is over, we're probably all going to be spending some time in front of a grand jury. You can do this? No problem. Oh, Joey is clearly no, doesn't know what a grand jury is, I guess. <laughs> um, does this like skulking, polling, teasing, polling, fake polling happen in the real world? I guess by definition we wouldn't know, but <laughs> um, Nate, Harry, I don't. Is this realistic? I'm, I'm sure it does, right? I mean, people get calls from pollsters all the time. Relatively few of those calls are from polls that can be reported at 5:38 about the upcoming election. Um, you know. I think in the real world, there probably wouldn't be this kind of moral dilemma over this. It'd be like, of course we can do that poll. Yeah, we'll do it 12 different ways, you know, um, and we'll do it as well. But people as we can. are doing like push polls, people are doing all sorts of non who's winning type polling all the time, right? Sure, of course. They're message testing. This doesn't seem all that crazy to me. I'm, I'm most interested in the idea that you can switch some of the facts around and still feel like you can trust the results. Is that possible? I mean, this is not going to be perfect. It's, you know, it's a hypothetical that they're describing. But yeah, so I, we should have mentioned this is a fiction. This right. Show. The, the, the show, you know, I, I, yes. Um, I, I was trying to think of something clever to say, but unfortunately the time zone change is killing my sense of humor. Um, In three hours, he's going to have a great line. <laughs> we'll come back. Uh, but, but no, I... I mean, you get this type, all, type of stuff all the time. You try and test it different ways. I mean, if you think about it right, there is a Republican way of describing a certain issue. Sometimes there's a Democratic way of describing an issue a certain way. So the idea that anything is going to be a perfect measure of what people actually end up hearing is a fallacy. So it shouldn't, we shouldn't take this and say, oh, we'd expect a perfect measure. No, we shouldn't expect a perfect measure. But this probably gives a rough enough gauge to figure out what's cooking. That was my do you want to say stuff face. Oh, sure. I was just going to say, piggybacking on this, again, Eli gave me something from the sacred archives. I probably, Wait, should, you know what? I probably should be wearing gloves. Yeah. To read this, let's, Eli is here. Is that Eli right? Eli is here. Spoiler let's, alert. Yeah, so let's bring him up. And now we're going to take a quick break. And now back to the show. There he is. And recontextualize Eli Forrest. Um, I love it. He Josh. sat in the middle of an aisle yeah. as if he didn't know I was going to make him come up. So, Josh, tell Fantastic. us again who Eli is, and, um, and, we'll, and then we'll look at this document. Eli, who are you really? <laughs> um, well, Eli is the real deal. Again, uh, he was a special assistant to President Bill Clinton. He was uh, Al Gore's chief speechwriter all the way through to the concession speech. I'm going to give you two... No, I'm going to give you two junior mints, the microphone and the chair in a minute. Um, no, no, he, well, you can speak more substantively about the raw material, the type of stuff that you would give yeah. to Aaron to discuss polling, because this was followed by, again, spoiler alert for those who haven't watched, President Bartlett does, in fact, tell the populace that he has MS. And he and does it to a really great Dire Straits song, I Indeed, believe. he does. And then further polling is done. Yeah, I mean, hi, first of all. <laughs> pleasure, pleasure to be here. No, I can stand. Uh, uh, I mean, the first thing I was gonna say is that, I, so I worked in the Clinton White House for both uh, President Clinton and Vice President Gore, and I think, I think it's true that there probably is some inherent elitism in this kind of, the show's you know, view that you know, polls are just problems to be overcome and we sort of lead our way to getting people to see our point of view. But I actually think some of it had to do with the times that the show was on the air. Uh, and, and having worked in the Clinton White House, it, there it was almost like an addiction to round-the-clock polling. And the one little anecdote I wanted to share about that is that when I started in the Clinton White House, it was actually right as 
President Clinton was about to be up for re-election a few months before that. And I remember going to a meeting in the offices of our pollster, this guy named Mark Penn, and we were sitting around trying to come up with answers Bill Clinton could give to difficult debate questions. And I didn't really realize what was going on, the sort of structure of the meeting, but we were brainstorming and literally people were coming in at the end of the meeting telling us how things we'd said at the beginning of the meeting had polled. So we could figure out, wow. I had no idea this was happening. Something I had thrown out randomly like an hour and a half earlier, at one point somebody came in and said, oh, 57%. And, and, and that's how round the clock, it was like they had you know, a sweatshop of pollsters. Uh, and, and as I'm sure you all know, it's a very famous thing. I think it came out when Dick Morris wrote a book about, uh, about the Clinton years. Um, at one point they had polled where Clinton's family should take a summer vacation when he was running for reelection in 1996. And, and the winning result was where he went. Um, so I think the West which, Wing was, which was trying... Yeah, which was what? Which was I think where? it was the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I makes sense. So. Which Obama just went to, right? No? Another national park, I think. Yosemite, yeah. same thing. Well, that's right, Yosemite. So, so you know, before, before speaking to this, I just wanted to say, I, in defense to some degree of that West Wing posture, and obviously it's, it's a TV show and the flags billow in the wind and we do the you know, righteous patriotic thing and that's why the fans of the show, I think, love the show. But it was... I think a reaction to those years and where polling was seen as so craven and tactical where almost every scene where it's discussed in the early West Wing seasons, it's, it's this thing to be overcome and rejected and we just lead our way through to the solution. And you know, it's a bit of a trope, I'll admit. Do we, uh, well, I wanna talk about the, the artifact in your hand, but, re, but, but do we have any sense of whether the Obama White House is as poll obsessed um, as the Clinton? Clinton White House was? My sense, and, uh, from people I know who, who worked in the Obama White House more in the first term, um, I mean, it's funny because the, the joke about George W. Bush after the Clinton years was that whereas Clinton did way too much polling, George W. Bush didn't do enough, which is to say he really didn't care what anybody thought. He didn't care what the voters thought. At least Rove and Cheney and his whole apparatus would just you know do what their supporters wanted and, and not really pay attention essentially to their constituents. So there's good polling that tells you just what, as Nate was saying, just what people think so that you actually, these are the people who elected you. I think Obama does a, a lot of polling. I mean, I think they have pollsters who do a lot of polling, but that it's less venerated maybe than in the Clinton years, that they look at it, certain people look at it, but, but that appears to be a White House where Obama's much more decisive than Clinton was, makes decisions quickly, doesn't revisit them, tends to get his head around a policy idea, and then that's, he just thinks they've come up with the solution. So I think polling in the Clinton years was also because you had not just Clinton himself, but a team of people who were weighing everything, revisiting everything, should we do this, should we do that, let's cut a deal, which is not a horrible thing, it's just a personality trait, I think. Uh, okay, tell us, uh, and then we'll get you guys in on this as well, but well, what are, you, what are you holding? Basically, I, this is from the first or first and second, I think it was a two-part episode from the third season, which is when I started on the show. And, and I, I you know, was a writer on the show and went on to write a lot of episodes of the show. But when I began, um, I was just right out of the Clinton White House, basically. And I, was, I operated almost like a consultant. And so Aaron would come into the writer's room and say, okay, we've got these polling numbers about... Um, uh, I think this is actually about the president's speech admitting to the country that he had MS and that he never disclosed it when he first ran for president. So these are the numbers and like, tell, uh, tell me what we can do to sort of get around them. So, um, you know, it's just basically looking at numbers. 34% uh, would reelect him, 39% want a new candidate, 26%, you know, don't know. Um, you know, so I had written something along the lines of, it's just Bartlett, if it's Bartlett running against himself, you know, we'll just look like we're dead. We should, we should get people to pull matchups against actual Republican senators, people who would run against him. He'll do much better than just, would you reelect him against nothing or against a fictional view? So this was just so Aaron, when he sat down and wrote the scenes, could basically push back against the numbers. And you know, I sent this to Josh today just to kind of say, it, it sort of supported my memory of the posture of the show being kind of anti-polling, in, in a way. You know, not a, and, and, but I guess depicted realistically. I feel like I should yield the stage to people. No, well, I, you should get in here and then you can yield the stage. But uh, any, I mean, it is true that? that any poll that tests someone against themselves, I'm not really sure how to interpret 
that result. Elections are a choice. Um, you know, one of two candidates who's really unpopular is probably going to become the next president, more likely Clinton, because she's less unpopular than Trump. Um, but it is a choice, and I tend to prefer head-to-head um, -head numbers over anything else. Sometimes people look at, you know, the right track, wrong track numbers or something else. Who do you trust more on, on the economy, for example? What are you doing, Harry? You said right track, wrong track, that you did the wrong thing. Oh, yeah. Too symmetrical. Too symmetrical. Right direction, wrong track, yeah. Um, but the point is that, you know, there's kind of a presumptuousness where you say, oh, well, um, Clinton leads this question by five points overall, but Trump leads her on the economy, therefore, therefore maybe he'll win because people care about the economy. In some ways you're saying, oh, these people can't make their own minds up, they can't weigh these factors themselves. Like, that's not just the elitist, it's probably also quite wrong, and usually the head-to-head -head numbers are the most accurate numbers in a poll. One thing that I, I love about this document that Eli has... Which is, Claire joked earlier is from the Bartlett Presidential Library. <laughs> um, it should, is, have, should be handled with gloves. Yes. It is a memorandum. Like it's, oh, it says memorandum on it. It says on memorandum on it. And Was it, it faxed? Is this just the way that you would write notes to the, to the staff? Because of your background, or is that you know? How, actually, no. I think that I think it was. We all did. Aaron didn't know it was a TV show. <laughs> 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 to be handled very delicately. We did. We did actually. You know, when it was this kind of stuff, when it was basically research on an issue, uh, something that he would do a lot um, when he was just simply writing an episode was um, he would say to us, "I just need a pro and con on an issue," or. Uh, what would be five things that, you know, somebody would be looking for in a pile of legal documents relating to, you know, this scandal. Josh, um, can, I, can I interrupt here and ask it a scandal question? Finally! <laughs> are, there, are there memorandum written for the writing staff? Is it memorandum? Memoranda? Mer memoranda? 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 Memoranda sounds like a girl you went to high school with or something. <laughs> memoranda was on Sex and the City, I think. Yeah, that's true. Correct. You are such a memoranda. Correct, yeah. <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> Can we go out on that? <laughs> in, 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 in the scandal writing room, are there ever things like this written where they kind of try to give the writers context for... It's a fascinating question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare Eli off the no. stage. Thank you, Eli. Oh, right. <laughs> Eli Addy, everybody. Oh, Eli Addy. Thanks so much. Actual substance. <laughs> but back to me. Uh, I'm not allowed anywhere near the uh, scandal writing room. That's true. They really do. They, they keep actors away because the walls are covered. I would occasionally sneak into uh, the West Wing writing room because there's index cards all over the place, actual ideas, the scripts that need to be written, maybe ideas, and I would just write little things and put them on the wall, none of which ever actually happened. Um, Will learns to fly. <laughs> things like that. Um, so, unfortunately, I cannot answer your question because, again, I'm not allowed anywhere near the... Writing. That's fair. Is that, un is that common or uncommon for there the, to the, be a huge divide between the I writers? I believe or that is common, yeah. They yeah. don't want uh, the actors anywhere near the people creating the show. They don't want to... <laughs> which is, I think, a very good idea. As an actor, <laughs> I think it's probably for the best. Except Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford wrote two episodes of The West Wing... Most famously, I think, having written an episode in which Will Bailey, my character, uh, has to get up in public and tell some non-truths. And he wrote me that storyline only so that my character could then, in a panic, say, I can't act. I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> it's literally like the, the most irresponsible use of a public platform just to give a little didn't zets he, he, to a didn't friend. Didn't give you a dig in the stage direction? Something that yes, there was also was a stage direction that said, uh, Will is talking to Toby and playing the scene badly. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing at the table read. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going we're gonna to play one more clip and then we're, we'll, we'll have a chance to have some questions from the audience. So um, if anyone wants to um, ask us about almost, you know, about anything really, uh, You'll start to line up, maybe up here, and maybe Galen can come and grab this, this mic when that happens, but we'll, we'll watch this one clip. Um, so this is, well, Rish, you really like, you like this, right? This is season two, <laughs> season 14, or season two, episode 14, The War at Home. I, you I you flagged this. this as one of your favorite moments? Yeah, I like this in terms of polling. 
um, because they they're able to talk about polling. They man they managed to talk about polling and um, the ways in which a poll can be interpreted, numbers can be interpreted incorrectly or correctly um, based on who's doing the interpretation. Um, but they managed to do it in the context of um, Josh and Donna's romance. Right, so Josh is uh, trying to conduct a poll to sample reaction to the State of the Union speech, which he hopes will provide support for a new gun protection law. Uh, and let's, yeah, let's take a look. They're just preliminary numbers. They're not gonna change. <sighs> No. Five-day waiting period. It tested well nationwide. Yeah. 58%. I didn't need nationwide. I needed those five districts. Now we're going to have to dial down the gun rhetoric in the Midwest. Why not dial it up? Because these numbers just told us that... You don't know what these numbers just told you. I'm an expert. I don't know what these numbers just told you. We know. Really? Numbers don't lie. They lie all the time. They lie when 72% of Americans say they're tired of a sex scandal, while all the while, newspaper circulation goes through the roof for anyone featuring the story. If you polled 100 Donnas and asked them if they think we should go out, you'd get a high positive response. But the poll wouldn't tell you it's because she likes you, and she knows it's beginning to show, and she needs to cover herself with misdirection. Believe me when I tell you that's not true. You say that these numbers mean dial it down. I say they mean dial it up. You haven't gotten through. There are people you haven't persuaded yet. These numbers mean dial it up. Otherwise, you're like the French radical, watching a crowd run by and saying, there go my people. I must find out where they're going so I can lead them. I think they're talking about more than just polling. <laughs> I feel like but it was getting awkward for the interpreter guy. Yeah. <laughs> also, whoever picked these clips has a fascination with Marley Matlin. Yeah. How, well, many, how the, many episodes was she in? But she's the pollster. She's the pollster. Okay. Come on, but still. Um, <laughs> so when we we when we when we had a we had a doc with like five like I don't know my fifteen options of polls uh, clips to play and um, and Rishi took a look at it and sort of immediately flagged this one and said like this is for me like the quintessential West Wing scene in a way. Right? Maybe I'm overstating what you told me. But, but about why? Polling. I mean, just about polling, to be sure. clear. Um, that, for me, like, illustrated in very clear terms the idea of how um, a sample could be... The numbers, numbers can say one thing, but actually they're talking about something else. And that idea that uh, Donna's going to say that she's for it, even though, you know, we, we talked about it earlier, about um, how people might lie on a poll. Is there normally that much sexual tension among pollsters? <laughs> Harry. <laughs> Can I? <laughs> we'll see. Where are we going after this? Um, Get some drinks up here. Uh, earlier, earlier today, we were doing a show at Politicon, and Harry was telling a story about the 2000 election and about how all of the pollsters were very eager to release the numbers and um, sort of get the get the call out in 2000 on election night. And Claire <laughs> Claire said, well, maybe all the pollsters, you know, had like hot dates later that night. And Harry just goes, trust me, they did not have hot dates <laughs> later that night. <laughs> you don't know these people. Geek is chic now. Is that right? Yeah. There is a story here about... One member on stage at 538, the night of the Indiana primary, probably the most important night of the campaign so far. Donald, Donald Trump may or may not have. One of the people on stage, who might have been me, but probably isn't me, and probably isn't Claire or Jody, <laughs> scheduled a date for 9 p.m. So confident was he that Hillary Clinton would win the state of Indiana. He no, or no, she, no, I should no, say. No, that Trump would win the state of Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it right if you're going to tell the story. <laughs> How'd it go, Harry? No comment. Okay, <laughs> um, okay we, can, uh, we can take some questions. Uh, so if you have a... I don't know if anyone has any questions. Um, but you can ask a question about um, the election. You can ask a question about uh, the Indiana primary night uh, or whatever you want. So actually, I don't know. So this is a wireless mic. Um, Galen, I don't know. Do you want to come up here and do some... And, and maybe help us out? Or do we want to use you as our mic handler? <laughs> Josh? <laughs> Okay. Okay. This is great. I Who's like got this. a question? Come on. Josh is, Josh is our spotter. No, go out there, man. Come on. There we go. I like it. Uh, all right. Right there. He's taking. 
I don't know. Well, we, we didn't think this part through. Have you had a chance to uh, look at the Democratic Party platform that I think was earlier today or maybe late yesterday and digest it and you want to react to it? I don't think any. I don't know. I have not read it yet. <laughs> I mean, I know, I think there was a $15 minimum wage in there, for example. Um, actually, one of, I, having complimented the West Wing. Say that again. Index. index. Oh, or it maybe it's not, not index. index. I don't know. Someone said index. Well, um, <laughs> one of the things at the platform. that wasn't realistic is a notion that people care all that much about the state of the union. With some exceptions, certainly when Bush tried to introduce the case for the Iraq war, um, you know, that mattered. For the most part, it's something that kind of insiders care about. And likewise, with party platforms, it's something that, that insiders care a lot about. And so, you know, Clinton might be signaling with a platform that, from my understanding, didn't have a lot of time to read it, but was pretty darn um, liberal, pretty darn to the left. She might be saying, look, that's the inside audience I'm concerned about all the moderate Democrats I already have in the bag, and so, you know, it's all about some complicated dance with, with Sanders and his supporters. Even though Clinton is leading Trump by a fair margin in the polls, she's still only at about 43%, and a lot of that's because the Sanders supporters haven't come home fully. And, and a lot of that is probably has to do with how the convention is gonna unfold and what part Sanders will play and, and people that support him will, did support him will play in the convention itself. So to me, some of it is kabuki. I would just say that there was a real split in the reaction that I saw. There were some parts of the platform that progressives or liberals, I don't even know any more of these words, um, really liked. And then there was other stuff, you know, on fossil fuels, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that perhaps they didn't like nearly as much. So I think it was kind of a split. I, but I, I agree. It's insider baseball. Ooh, that, no one, no voter cares about this stuff. Really? No, okay. they don't care. I don't know about that. I've got my next people, people, care, people care about Josh, issues. I feel. I think Phil Donahue used to yes. do this. Yes. Okay. Right. Here we go. Yeah. And uh, you get by the it. way, if you're scoring at home, that was a one mint question. Yeah. You do get mints, right? Okay. Hi there. Um, so I just wanted to ask. There's been a lot of emphasis um, recently about um, the prominence of white voters um, and whether what they mean um, as far as polling goes. And I, I read an interesting tweet by Ron Brownstein, um, and he said that no Republican nominee in modern polling has lost college whites, and right now Donald Trump is trailing with them. So I just wanted to know kind of what your thoughts are work on uh, college whites and, and how they're going to affect the election. How many mints does that get? That's a two mint. That's a two junior mint. As a white voter, I just feel yes. tickled. <laughs> Someone? Fine, I'll start. I mean, look, I wrote an article a few weeks back basically saying that Donald Trump wasn't getting enough white support if it held to win the White House. And a large part of that reason is even though he's doing fairly well among non-college whites without a college degree. He's not doing well enough with whites with a college degree. But I think we oftentimes break down the electorate so far down. You know, it's like, how do, you know, women under the age of 35 who, you know, like, like cats, junior but <laughs> like junior mints and so on and so forth. I think you get the number of votes that you need to win and that's how you win an election. The person with the most votes wins and there's many different not ways always, to get but there. Yes. <laughs> the most votes in the state that mattered. Okay. Uh -huh. um, but I, I think, you know, you can slice it a lot of different ways. I could draw up a scenario in which, you know, Donald Trump won the election despite losing college whites. Do I think it's probable? No. Um, and he's not winning enough non-college whites right, right now in order to do so. But you can splice it and dice it different ways. And the fact, the only thing that matters is getting more votes than the other people, at least in enough states to get 270 electoral votes. Somebody in the cheap seats. Yeah, head on back there. Here we go. Here we go. Stay with me. <laughs> this is Run. <laughs> you look like a Jewish runner as one I can say myself. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, in California this year, we're going to have for the first time two Democrats running uh, in a general against each other uh, for the Senate race. And uh, how would you try to model that if uh, it's not quite the same as a regular general election and it's not quite the same as a primary? I mean, what would you look for? And will 538 just treat that as an automatic Democratic hold, or will you try to look at that and try to make a prediction? 
boy, things like that are things that will, at some point in August or whatever, take up 24 hours of me having to adjust the model for... Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, obviously it's a Democratic hold, for sure, and we'll still run numbers on which candidate is likely to win. Um, to be honest, most people are interested, outside of California, not in who the senator is from California, but in terms of where Democrats' chance of picking up the Senate. And so, but yeah, we'll, I'm sure there'll be um, quite a bit of, of polling on it. I went four mints, but mainly because they were all stuck together. Four? <laughs> yeah, a lot I'm of working mints. up some heat now. They're really yeah. starting to melt. <laughs> Hi. Um, so one of the warmer Brexit takes I've been seeing is that now that the Leave campaign is kind of, it's like there was like a dog catching a car thing and theme in the, in the take was that now that they have the result that they might be like, uh, no, we're not going to take Article 50. Uh, we're just going to stay. We didn't really want this. We just wanted to make David Cameron look bad or something. So just wondering what you might think about that happening. Well, it's too late, isn't it? I mean, I think that there's... Well, they, right, there is like a back... There is a... It's, it's not going to be... It'll take a while for them to actually leave. Something right. like two years, I think. Right. Um, but we had talked, relationships like that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked earlier today, um, not, not as much about the mechanics of possibly going back in or, or whatever, but about this take that's floating around about like instant regret among voters. And that, I don't know. Did we talk about that here or was no, it? We it's have all, it? Sorry, it's all blended together. We're in a live been, show Fugue we, State right now. There's but been polling that suggests that there isn't that much regret. Right. Is it, there, was a, there was a Washington Post story, which this might be what you're referring to, that Google said that three times as many people were searching what is the EU today. And we talked about this a bit earlier today. You know, and I... I retweeted that tweet with some like snark, like, you know, the morning after regret or something. But I, you know, I've, I've changed my tune because I actually think that that um, is sort of, it's a bit, it's a bit condescending, I guess, right? You can say, and this, bit, yeah. this, this guy uh, who's a PhD student at it's Stanford. Josh Lyman levels <laughs> of condescension. Yeah, yeah. Sort of said, you know, these people who are Googling that could just be sort of saying, all right, well, like, what's the next step? Like, what are the intricacies of the EU? And this guy pointed out that the European project is a complicated one, it's bureaucratic, and that people haven't been brought in enough to understand it, to understand its institutions, to give a shit about its parliamentary elections. And so we should, you know, it's not necessarily that people regret it, it's more just trying to understand what this new world is gonna be. Well, I could say they can, they can hold another referendum. There's nothing that's stopping. This is under advisement. There's, I don't believe that there's yeah. actually anything that forces them into this decision. Um, but I would say that, you know, Voters knew it was, I, I think we don't trust voters enough in all honesty to know what's, what they're doing. They knew what they were doing. They heard the arguments from both sides and the polls as Nate suggested that have come out since says that most people who voted to leave are very satisfied with that decision. Uh, most voters were, they, they stuck with their choice. So, you know, if you wanna go ahead and defy the voters, be my guest, but don't be surprised if the voters then bite your tongue yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, to me that, and you kind of, it's a little bit like now the very late in the game moves here, oh, can we still deny Trump the nomination at the convention? I mean, you know, I think Trump is a bad nominee for the Republican Party. If I were Republican, I would not have voted for him. Um, but, but still, you know, that die was cast, and it seems like really dangerous now to try and override what in the end was a fairly clear plurality, but still a fairly clear mandate for Trump because they could never find an alternative option. I mean, look, there are a lot of things that, a lot of ways it could play out. Um, you know, there's some notion that, well, maybe Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland actually um, have a veto over this. I mean, it certainly does seem like Scotland is likely to, to not be a part of the UK for, for very much longer. Um, you know, maybe it's kind of dragged out in the bureaucracy and then Boris Johnson becomes a conservative leader and you have a labor leader because Corbyn's also in trouble who runs on being part of the EU and then you have a mandate that way in a complicated way. but. But to just have a do-over, unless you had kind of very strong polling suggesting people really had changed their mind, I think is a, a pretty dangerous precedent to set, even as dangerous as it might be for the UK to, to leave the EU. All right, let's do two more questions. We'll try and get through them. I've got my next two. First, I'm awarding this gentleman the rest of the box because oh. I'm tired of the mint bit. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, so for Josh and Rishi, uh, first time, long time, and awesome, love it. And when you guys get to the Women of Kumar and you can't get Allison Janney or Anna Devere Smith, I'm your guy. It's my favorite episode of the entire series. I'll, I'll, I'll drive myself there. Uh, but 
for, for the rest of you, so, so many... <laughs> that was a real head fake towards actually asking them a question, but no, yeah, go ahead. But for the rest of you, you know, so many, so many pundits and talking heads say of people who might not support Donald Trump, that's what they're saying to pollsters, that's what they'll say to their friends, but there's this undercurrent of, yeah, when they get in the voting booth, will they... So, yeah, so Harry, you wanna, how, how do you quantify for it? How do, you, how do you account for it? Well, all right, let's talk about it. We've, we had a Republican primary, Literally right? why we're here. We, we had contests that occurred in that Republican primary, correct? Did Donald Trump do better on election day than he did in the polls? The answer is no. He did not do better on election day than he did in the polls. In fact, he did a point worse on aver- in the average state. Um, we thought we start- heard the same thing in 2008. Oh, a lot of people say they vote for a black man and Barack Obama, and then they wouldn't vote for him. And what happened? Barack Obama pretty much hit his polling average in 2008, and then in 2012, he actually did slightly better than his polling average. Um, I, I understand it. There's still a people lot. People aren't embarrassed. Is right, people aren't embarrassed. There's no shy Trump effect. I mean, as I've said before, what, what Donald Trump supporters do you know that keep their mouths shut about voting for Donald Trump? Um, I mean, look, I'll, it could be true. There could be a shy... What? Could be no, true? dude, 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 you can't interrupt my nuanced answer yeah, nuance, through. Nuance, Jody. That it could good. be true. I mean, you know, what we do know is that there's more error in polls empirically than you get from the margin of error alone. The polls can be systematically wrong, and in my view, they're about equally likely to be wrong in, in both directions. And so if, um, if Trump is down three points in our polling average going into election day, he could quite easily win. He'll be an underdog, a significant underdog, but he could win, and one reason why might be that his voters were, were underpolled, he won undecided. Likewise, Clinton could win by eight points. Given that polling average, maybe the polls um, did not include enough Hispanic voters, for example. Maybe because Trump voters are very vocal, they responded to polls when Clinton voters didn't. Sometimes polls can overrate the more enthusiastic side. In the Scottish referendum, for example, where the polls overestimated the yes vote for that, clearly more enthusiasm on the yes side a couple of years ago, but no wound up beating the polls. So it's very hard to guess in which direction the polls will be wrong. It's useful after the fact if the polls are wrong um, to try and figure out why. But the answer is that could be true. But I can give you like five reasons also why, why Clinton could beat her polls instead. Who liked Harry's answer better? Uh, okay. <laughs> last, last question. We should take a poll. Uh, la- last question uh, from you. Hi. All right. Um, I'm actually married to a West Wing and all like, um, and we, we watch it re- religiously. Um, do you think that the West Wing could have predicted this? And do you think Aaron Sorkin didn't go far enough with having Trump be the, the nominee? They kind of predicted Obama, right, with the Jimmy Schmitz? Yeah, uh... they predicted a lot in the future. So I was wondering if I you I think it's it that all of the people who watched the West Wing and, like, obsessed over it then went in, into politics and thought that's how it actually works. Question. <laughs> um, I think it, it, we can. I guess we can give the mic back to Josh too, who could answer this. <laughs> Hi. It seems like it, it. I don't know that it could have been predicted. It seems like too far off the scales. It looks like the chart where you see the uh, what the pound is doing now against the dollar. Like it just like the idea of Trump is too far away from the world that's been established by the West Wing. Um, you know, like that kind of the kind of rhetoric that we actually hear on TV from a candidate. It's just. It's um, even though it, clearly it could happen in real life, it's it's too unbelievable for TV. Josh, I'm winded. <laughs> it's gotten, but politics has gotten really dark. I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to be ironic. I mean, like as have political shows. Well, yeah. well, but also political. I mean, yeah, as have political. Sh- it's true, right? Political shows, but like television in general, if you think about it, like if we're going to get dark and existential, have sort of primed the American public to be okay with Donald Trump. Like, you know, the Republican primary electorate and to a certain extent, news media have normalized Trump. This is a thing that Americans, he had, you know, universal name recognition. People kind of like the fact that he's got, he's almost got this like, his in, in his like Rococo decor, it's almost like down to earth richness. It's your idea of what it's like to be a rich person, but also sort of be attainable. Television has primed America to vote for Donald Trump. And I think that that is... I mean, I know it was a lighthearted question, but, like, think about that. Think about who the Republican nominee for president is. 
I think Hollywood. I think TV. It's definitely. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> I would. I should say, it's not so unbelievable for for TV, and I think TV definitely primed America because of The Apprentice for this possibility. But the question was, you know, could it be predicted by The West Wing? And I think that there's just too much decorum on the show. Interesting. <laughs> um, all right. Well, on that note. We're going to uh, we're going to end, but I just want to uh, thank the folks from the Crest. Like this space is amazing. We didn't really know what we were getting ourselves mm. into, so this has been really really fun. So thank you all for coming, and thanks to uh, Peter and James and Aponte and Chuck and Dana from the Crest Theater, and thanks to Galen Druk back there, our producer. Um, and thanks, love you, Galen. And thanks to all of you for coming out. And that's it for our episode. Thanks so much to our friends at the 538 Podcast, Jody Avergan, Nate Silver, Claire Malone, and Harry Enton. You should go right now and subscribe to their podcast. You can find it on iTunes and all the other usual places, or on their site, 538.com. That's 538 written out as words, not digits. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. We'll be talking about episode 15, and we'll be joined by former Obama White House Press Secretary Jay Carney. And in the meantime, if you have comments or questions, you can discuss this episode with us and with the other listeners at thewestwingweekly.com or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thewestwingweekly. You can also find us on Twitter at Josh Molina and at Rishi Herway. And the show is at West Wing Weekly. Okay. Okay. What's next? I'm excited to tell you about a brand new show from Radiotopia called The Recipe. It's hosted by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt and Deb Perlman. You might know Kenji from Serious Eats and all his incredible food wisdom. He's also the author of the cookbooks The Food Lab and The Walk, both of which are New York Times bestsellers. Deb is the creator of the extremely popular recipe website, Smitten Kitchen. She's a self-taught home cook and cookbook author. And on this new show, Deb and Kenji will do a deep dive into the techniques and ingredients behind some of the most popular go-to dishes. Look for the recipe wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes start February 26th. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.